Welcome to a special episode of the Left Behind Podcast for Sunday, March 8th, 2020. I'm your host, Chris Markovich. On this special episode, International Women's Day, a celebration of the progress that has been gained and the achievements that have been made by the international women's movement across the globe. But who exactly does International Women's Day represent in 2020? And have we really made as much progress as we like to think that we've made? In this special episode, I spoke with advocates from various feminist organizations to find out more about what International Women's Day means to them and to learn more about what work needs to be done. And joining me now on the line, once again, is award-winning feminist author, guest speaker, and all-around badass, Julie Lalonde. Welcome back to the show. Thanks for having me. So International Women's Day is coming up this Sunday, and um, although it's uh, it would be nice to have some good news to talk about, we keep seeing more headlines of you know, um, women being, you know, subjugated and discriminated against. And, you know, it's, uh, it's really troubling. It's been a rough start to 2020. It certainly has. And I'm looking at, you know, in the same week that we're seeing uh, Elizabeth Warren drop out of the race. And so kind of mm-hmm. last hope of having a female president in the U.S., CBC is doing a big report on intimate partner violence, and they found that every day in Canada, 620 women and girls are turned away from shelters. So it's been a rough go for a year where we keep being told that women have made it, uh, that Me Too changed the game. Um, And I think there was a little glimmer of hope fairly recently when Weinstein was convicted of at least two of the five charges he was uh, charged with. But that's not enough to, to tell me that we're inherently heading in the right direction. Yeah. If anything, in at least several of the provincial jurisdictions, we seem to be heading in the opposite direction. We saw in the last couple of days alone uh, that uh, Ontario was canceled a million dollars for a rape crisis centers um, in Alberta last week. Um, the AHS review came out uh, where the panel was looking to uh, limit funding for different departments uh, and the top 10 procedures that were deemed of limited clinical value, according to um, statistics and from the Alberta government's priorities, two of those were sterilization for women and breast reduction for women. So I'm flabbergasted that provincial governments in this country, you think in this day and age, and we talk about it so often that they would get a clue and actually start enabling and enacting legislation that would help women and not harm them. Yeah. But the reality is that we don't, we're not interested in investing in the long-term solutions that will, you know, pull women out of poverty, pull women out of violent situations. And I think in some ways we're still reeling from 10 years of a conservative federal government that really annihilated the feminist movement and really made it so that it was almost impossible for us to make a case because there was very little money, if any, put towards research. Uh, You couldn't get federal funding for research or advocacy. Um, And so it meant that we couldn't really measure the the breadth of the problem, which meant it was difficult to make policy proposals um, and to push for practical solutions. So, I mean, we've known this, and I say we as in, you know, the feminists who've been in the trenches for a long time, we know that 
um, women are experiencing violence and inequality and marginalization every day, but for so long it was difficult for us to prove it um, and funders want proof. Um, and so I think we're still reeling from that, frankly, even though it's been a few years now, I mean, it completely decimated the feminist movement and it's taken us quite a bit to crawl out of it. And while we're doing that, the world has moved towards populism. We've seen an incredible backlash to the women's movement. So we were not well positioned to respond to the backlash of the last few years because we've been just trying to get our legs under us again after so many years. So then with the fact that populism has had this reactionary phase to you know, women's rights, to transgender rights, to uh, refugee rights as well, um, what then can organizations and activists do to try and turn the tide here? Because as you were saying earlier, you know, we've seen Elizabeth Warren drop out of the race for the Democratic nomination. And now we just have effectively a bunch of white guys again, old white guys, because they're, they're, all, old. they're all in they're their in late, late 70s. 70s. Yeah, exactly. Ah, I think, like, uh, was it uh, Joe Biden supposed to be 80 next year? So yeah. Yeah, <laughs> like, yeah. how, how are we going to turn things around here? It seems <laughs> as though we keep going in circles over and over again. Well, for me, how I keep my sanity and truly how I, you know, force myself to get out of bed in the morning is I look at it from a micro perspective if the macro is too scary. And so I think about my own career trajectory and that, you know, prior to even five years ago, I would, was very difficult to get into workplaces to talk about these issues. I was definitely not encountering people who had heard the term sexual violence before, who had heard about things like intimate partner violence. Um, and so we have made a significant amount of progress, I think, in raising awareness. But what I see all the time is raising awareness is not the same thing as creating social change. Um, and it's up to us to now start pushing to, you know, we've gone past the point of, I just didn't know. I mean, there's just no way that in a Canadian context, you're not aware of issues of gender inequality because we've seen it in every sector of society over the last five years. But um, I think Canadians just got to start getting feisty. Uh, my sector in particular, I mean, the feminist movement in Canada is almost entirely funded by the government, which is very different than my American colleagues, for example, who are rely on private donors, um, big foundation money. In Canada, we, I think rightfully, should be getting our government to, to pay for the work that we do um, as a taxpayer. I want my money to go towards rape crisis centers and women's shelters and settlement agencies. But the downfall to that is that we are very reticent to bite the hand that feeds. And there is a lot of apprehension to get political, to get angry, to get demanding, because what if they cut us off? And that's a very real fear. I mean, I'm 34 years old uh, and I've had my career interrupted twice um, because I was laid off as a result of government funding cuts. So, I mean, these are very real fears, but we're in a position right now where, for example, our current prime minister needs his feminist base to get him reelected, to keep him popular, to help him maintain his feminist image internationally. And so we got to start coming to his doorstep because the idea that he's just going to cut us off, he can't. <laughs> like, he just absolutely can't. So I think federally, um, we should be getting a lot more uh, agitated it just gets trickier when you look at provincial issues um, because, you know, there's so many populist premiers operating across Canada right now. There's no female premiers at all. 
Uh, I live in Ontario where getting Ford Nation to care about women is laughable. Um, so I think it's a little bit trickier there. And that's where I think a lot of people are feeling a little despair, which I understand. Um, but I think federally we could and absolutely should be making a hell of a lot more noise. Now, here in BC, there seems to be a little bit of an interesting uh, conversation restarting in the last day or so. Um, there was um, a BC Liberal MLA who has twice introduced equal pay legislation, a private member's bill, uh, into the legislature. Stephanie Kedia is her name. And some of the you know government officials and supporters that I've seen on Twitter have argued that the BC government has already been doing work in important files to, you know, raise the you know profile and um, uh, look at um, leveling the playing field for women in British Columbia with respect to you know childcare and healthcare and all all sorts of other measures that they've been implementing. Do you think that equal pay legislation has its place, and does it matter who brings forth this legislation? Whether the previous government had a a terrible track record on helping women and children or not. I think that there is the ideal and then there's the real. And I think ideally, yes, we absolutely should only, you know, take money that is pure and clean. We should only work with folks who are completely and totally unproblematic. Uh, but I don't think that's realistic. And I'm a big, big believer that perfection is the enemy of good. And so I think if people are willing to put forward legislation that's going to ultimately help women, then I'm here for it, um, whether it's because they mean it or whether because they're dealing with backlash or they think it'll get them elected. I don't really care at the end of the day if the legislation comes through. And for me, when I think about core issues that say a hell of a lot about how we view women in this world, pay equity, childcare, abortion, violence, like those are the four kind of big pillars for me and all four of those in Canada generally with the exception of some um, childcare in Quebec generally across Canada those four issues are abysmal um, like we're not investing in them we're not prioritizing them election after election happens they're never a priority and yet they're fundamental to women's lives um, and frankly the prosperity and the economic impact of Canada um, and yet we don't we don't yeah, we don't prioritize it at all. Uh, and so I'm here for it. Absolutely. So what is your hope then coming out of International Women's Day this year to look forward to for the rest of 2020? What are you hoping to see? Well, first of all, with the exception of uh, Saskatchewan, uh, International Women's Day falls on daylight savings time. So I feel like that's a good omen. Uh, <laughs> we're like bringing more sunshine to the world, which I love. That's right. Um, I am feeling hopeful because again, I have the privilege of being in the trenches every day, talking to young people, talking to older folks, talking to everyday people who are scared by what they're seeing on the news and they want to know how to make a difference. And I think we've seen some progress in really small kind of tangible ways that give me the fuel to think, okay, we're onto something. I think the fact that people are having more nuanced conversations and looking at the links between women's issues and climate change um, and economic prosperity uh, and safe campuses and access to abortion, whether you live in New Brunswick or Ontario, like 
I, I'm seeing generally the discourse seems to be a lot more intersectional and a lot more uh, nuanced and looking at there's a, a lot of ways that we can improve the lives of women and girls. Um, so, I mean, I ultimately, I think the day that I stop feeling hopeful is the day that I should do the sector a favor and retire. Um, because I do think that there's a lot of people who are doing this work who don't really have a lot of hope. And I think it, it, it kind of poisons the well a little bit. So I, I, I think I have a responsibility to be hopeful and to be optimistic. Um, and I am, I'm feeling like people are slowly getting to a place of, of rage. <laughs> um, and rage is uncomfortable, but it's, it usually propels us forward um, when you're doing it from a place of empathy for others uh, and not just angry about what happened to you individually. Um, and so I'm seeing a lot of anger and uh, I think it's great. Now, the last time we chatted, you had just announced that uh, your book was uh, being taken on by a publisher. And now uh, Resilience is Futile is uh, not only on the bookshelves, it's uh, selling off the bookshelves so fast, it can't actually be restocked <laughs> quickly enough. So tell us about that journey over the last few months. What's that been like? It's been pretty surreal. I want to give a shout out to my publisher, Between the Lines. They're based in Toronto. They are a publisher that only focuses on social justice, left-leaning works. They also operate as a collective and a co-op. Um, so their labor practices are incredible. They make decisions by consensus. So it was a huge honor to have, a, a, you know, a group that are so social justice minded to say, we want this book. Um, so that's been really incredible. And, and, and I feel so supported by them because it's been a real journey. Uh, you know, it's a memoir about my experience of being stalked by an ex-partner for over a decade while simultaneously having a public career as an advocate that really put a target on my back with a lot of uh, hate mobs and online harassment. And so just really what it's like to live under surveillance um, and to be to have complicated feelings about it. So I'm very proud of it. Um, I've gotten lots of great feedback from survivors who feel very supported, people who feel like it really opened their eyes. But it's also really terrifying. I mean, I walk down the streets of Ottawa and I can see my book in a window and, you know, I come from poverty in Northern Ontario. So like, that's a huge deal. But then I also pause and think, oh, all of my deepest, darkest secrets are in this book on display at this bookstore. Um, so it's pretty scary to kind of put that out into the world. But uh, ultimately, I think it's provoked a lot of really important discussion. And that's all I could have ever wanted. Where can readers find your book? So my book is available wherever books are sold. Um, I would encourage you to check out your indie bookstores or to get it directly from my publisher, btlbooks.com. Um, a little birdie told me that you might want to check out my publisher on International Women's Day because they might be doing something special for it. Um, but otherwise, yeah, any uh, chapters, Amazon, if you're in the States, Barnes & Noble, um, you can order it from anywhere, but yeah, please go check out your indie bookstores because they're the ones having these important conversations that are oftentimes getting ignored by the mainstream. The book is called Resilience is Futile, The Life and Death and Life of Julie S. Lalonde. You can find Julie on Twitter at Julie S. Lalonde, and you can find the publisher, as she mentioned, on their website, btlbooks.com. You can also order the book on Amazon or wherever books are sold. 
please do check out your local bookstore. Support your indie bookstores. Julie, thank you so much for being on the show again and uh, take care of yourself until then. Thank you so much. Coming up, I speak with Alison Gorka from Just Stripper Things, a former dancer and sex worker rights advocate about her experience as a dancer and the state of the sex worker rights movement in Canada. And later in the show, I speak with Sophia Banks, a trans rights activist, photographer, author, and vegan chef about how International Women's Day often misses the mark with respect to trans rights and what the conversation should be focusing on. Joining me now on the show is Alison Gorka from Just Stripper Things, a YouTube channel and Facebook page, which is informing the world about the life's the life of a former sex worker, dancer, and also features a series on the history of sex work in Vancouver. Alison, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. So I want to start by asking you about a little bit of your personal journey. How did you get into dancing? And... Um, <laughs> <laughs> How was that experience? <laughs> well, why did I get into get um, into dancing naked for a living? Capitalism, <laughs> the joys and horrors of capitalism. Basically, I was going from um, retail job to retail job, and as it goes, hours get cut. All of a sudden, I'm commuting two hours just for a four-hour shift. Yada yada. And a friend of mine, her mother used to be an exotic dancer, so she suggested that to me. And I'd always enjoyed dancing and performing and the like. So we went to a club, checked it out. I asked a lot of questions of the dancers there and kind of went from there. What did you like best about dancing? Um, there's a couple things that I liked quite a bit. Uh, the performance aspect, being able to choose my music, the creativity, the fun costumes I got to wear that were like custom made and just do really silly things. Like I had uh, wrestling themed outfits. I was Jess Hardy. I had a hurricane costume complete with their entrance music. I mimicked Jeff Hardy's dance on his way to the ring from the old Hardy Boys days. Just ridiculous stuff like that. And I made a lot of really awesome friends there that I still keep in touch with. And yeah, there's a genuine sense of connection when you're around people all the time in such a stigmatized workplace and where you're naked around each other all the time because you're changing out of your costume into the costume, getting off stage, getting dressed into your regular clothes in between shows. There's a certain amount of vulnerability that comes with that. And I think in a way, it does help to facilitate kind of a more honest connection with people. And what were some of the challenges that you ran into other than obviously the, uh, the stigma associated with dance, with um, being a dancer and sex work in general? Well, I think most of the issues that are inherent in dancing and in many aspects of sex work are directly tied to the stigma. Like if the stigma wasn't there, a lot of these issues would not be there because when it comes down to it, when clubs take advantage of you financially, you have no recourse because people consider your work to be less and not worthy of protection, not worthy of even thinking about really. 
um, I think in one of my videos, I did talk about how one club tried to raise their SoCan KPAC fees, which is the music licensing fee. They tried to raise it to like $4 per show. And the agency's um, graphic designer, he actually is also a musician, and he knew a little bit about this stuff. So he contacted SoCan KPAC and asked about the legality of it because performers are actually not supposed to pay for those fees. And basically they brushed aside his concerns and they didn't care as long as the fees were paid, no matter if it was uh, basically illegally done. So the fees themselves, so Ken really didn't care who was paying them, but exactly. they, they, they also didn't give any sort of guidance on how to, how to alleviate the situation. They just kind of threw their hands up and said, it's not our problem. That's basically um, the gist that I got from that. Yes, this was a very long time ago. So the specifics elude me, but yes, basically there was no recourse. It was all left to the agency and the agents themselves basically strong armed the bar and said, if you're going to charge the dancers this much for SoCan KPAC, then we're going to raise the show prices. And that's how that happened. But it was all the agency. It wasn't SoCan that made any sort of decision to punish this bar for exploiting it, exploiting us. And what uh, what ultimately was the catalyst in deciding to leave that field, like leaving dancing? That was a, um, I'd say there were several factors. The main factor was because I had started wrestling training with uh, ECCW, Extreme Canadian Championship Wrestling. Now it's Elite Canadian Championship Wrestling. Um, and it was really hard to keep up with my training if I had to be on the road all the time. And every time I came back and I had a week off and I was able to go back to training, I'd be even further behind the rest of the class. And it was just getting way too hard to catch up and feeling like I'm missing out constantly. And uh, yeah, so I mostly quit. I still did Sundays here or there. And then that also led to we'll say relationship issues. <laughs> a lot of partners are not very good about dating a dancer, even if you are literally dancing when you meet them and when you start dating them. A little while later, when you retire and go, oh, I don't know, maybe I'll go back to doing Sundays. Like, well, I wouldn't have started dating you if you were dancing. But you did. You literally did. <laughs> so, yeah, it's it's tough. I mean... As I said, it all comes down to stigma because they think all these sordid little thoughts about, oh, oh, what's she doing out there? There's all these guys looking at her. I don't know. And it comes down to not trusting your partner, which is bullshit. I know, but it does affect relationships and it affects your own well-being to be treated like that by someone who's supposed to trust you. Yeah, relationships are difficult as they are, but, you know, having a <laughs> stigma associated with sex work and with dancing and you know effectively not having a say in what someone does with their body can be off-putting to people because it's not something that's talked about 
enough as far as bodily autonomy mm-hmm. goes, but when it's thrust in people's faces like that, they're forced to confront with it, and many people simply cannot deal with it. So that's mm-hmm. definitely something that is um, is an issue that needs to be talked about more um, with respect to having respect and trust for someone to, you know, be in charge of their own, you know, destiny when it comes to what they do with their bodies. And I think that some, um, you know, reproductive rights and sex worker rights and um, and human rights are definitely intertwined. So there's a lot to be said for you know, uh, ongoing, uh, ongoing conversations around consent and around bodily autonomy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. I had an ex actually who was okay with the fact that I used to be a dancer because some people are still weird about dating a former sex worker even. And the way he put it was, you know, I don't have anything against going for a massage and that's a very personal thing and there's contact and so on and so forth. But that is acceptable. How is that different from somebody getting up on stage naked? It's the same sort of perceived intimacy. And there's just too much of a hang up when it comes to a lot of of, um, heterosexual relationships specifically, where it is deemed that the woman's body is there by their partner's property. And I think we really need to address that as a society and get past it, because that is, of course, part of it. And the idea that women are owning their own bodies and profiting off of them, that makes a lot of people very uncomfortable, even outside of heterosexual relationships and such, which is, of course, what I have experience in. (laughs) Now, your journey um, through dancing over the years wasn't a solo journey. You had a very good friend along with you, who's also obviously mm-hmm. a friend of mine, um, in uh, in Jen. And although she's not on the show with us right now, um, maybe tell us a little bit about your friendship with her over the years and how you supported each other. Oh, honestly, like my favorite parts of dancing was when the two of us were dancing together, because it is awesome to have your best friend with you when you're doing like eight hour Greyhound trips. And, uh, you know, especially when you're going out of town, because um, in BC, the way that most clubs operate is on the circuit. So you have a lineup that is getting paid for stage one week, and then you have a new lineup the next week. So as a dancer, you're going from one club to another every week. And that a lot of times involves going to Vancouver Island, going to like Kamloops, Kelowna. Some people would even go out to Alberta. So there's a fair amount of traveling and there's a fair fair amount of uh, downtime in between shows where you just kind of have to entertain yourself, which is much easier when you are sharing a room with your best friend. (laughs) And we can look out for each other. We would often warn each other about, you know, hey, there's this weird dude in front row. There was one absolutely surreal time where we were at a club in Surrey and this is back in like 2002, maybe 2004 at the latest. So before the alt-right and the uh, neo-Nazis got super prevalent and kept more in the shadows as they should, or, you know, go away and die. Um, and she comes up from being on stage and she goes, dude, you, you won't believe it. There's a fucking neo-Nazi in front row. <laughs> 
And even though she warned me, and I knew that this was a thing that was happening, it was so surreal that I still didn't know how to deal with it. And I ended up yelling at the guy in German. (laughs) And of course, he didn't understand. He thought it was really cool that this chick is, you know, yelling at him in German as he's Zeke heiling me. So finally, I swore at him and told him I'm Polish at the top of my lungs. And the smile dropped from his face pretty much immediately. And uh, he was not to be seen next time that either of us was on stage. But yeah, (laughs) and I completely forgotten about that for years. And then she reminded me of it. (laughs) So we still talk about the old days. And we still have a lot of mutual friends from that time that we uh, like to hang out with and Yeah, we used to have um, the uh, Hotel Wrestling Federation as well, where we practiced uh, wrestling moves in our hotel rooms. (laughs) I think that's an experience slightly unique to the two of us and is not representative of many dancers. I won't speak for all of them because we're all pretty much giant nerds in different ways. But uh, I think that one might be a little bit singular to us. Now, um, speaking of talking about the you know the old days and about your experiences together, you now have mm-hmm. a YouTube channel called and a Facebook page, Just Stripper Things. Uh, tell us about uh, your Facebook and YouTube uh, adventures with Jen. <laughs> well, honestly, the videos that I find the most fun and where more of our sense of humor comes out are the ones where it's me and Jen kind of vibing off each other. Because I think our senses of humor really kind of play off each other quite well to the point where a random Facebook friend of mine that I don't know in real life, after we put out a video on relationships, which discussed not just romantic relationships, but also interpersonal friendships, family relationships, and how that's affected by dancing and sex work. And we managed to have a lot of fun with that subject, even though there were some kind of heavy parts. And uh, this person messages me with just, how are you guys so funny? And that was a highlight to me, honestly, because obviously I think we're hilarious, but it was nice to see that somebody else did too. (laughs) So yeah, that's probably the, my favorite and more fun part of the adventure. Um, The more serious and kind of ongoing daunting project is, um, my project of the history of sex work in Vancouver. I put out part one almost a year ago and it's gotten some pretty good reach and some pretty good feedback. People seem to enjoy the informative content that uh, we managed to put together in there. And I'm working on part two right now. Well, part two, three, four, five, God knows how many parts it's going to be. Um, because it's dealing with the very large and difficult subject matter of um, the murdered and missing women of the downtown east side, uh, specifically the ones who were targeted and murdered by Robert Willie Picton. So there's going to be a couple different parts. Um, The next one that I'm going to be working on soon is going to be dealing with the absolute systematic failure of not only the RCMP and the VPD, in the investigation of Picton, but also the systemic failure of how even people in government like the mayor addressed the issue, or rather failed to address the issue, and how a case in 1997, which could have actually stopped him five years before he was stopped, 
had uh, Crown Council not dropped the case. So there's a lot of levels to it, and I hope to inform people of exactly how it's not just one part of the system that is affecting these things. It is an overall uh, failure of systems that are in place to protect the citizens of this country, but did not do so because they saw sex workers as lesser and not deserving of the protection that everyone should be entitled to. Alison Gorka's YouTube channel and Facebook page, Just Stripper Things. You can find Just Stripper Things on Facebook at Just Strip Things. Allison, thank you so much for being on the show today and have yourself a pleasant evening. <laughs> thank you so much. Thanks for having me, man. Coming up, I speak with Sophia Banks about the realities of being a trans woman in Canada. And later in the show, I speak with North Island Pride Society's Keisha Disher about the challenges of putting on a big pride festival in a small town. Joining me now on the line is trans activist, chef, entrepreneur, and photographer, Sophia Banks. Welcome to the show. Hi, Chris. Thanks for having me on. So I wanted to first ask you about um, your journey in Toronto and how you got your business started first in photography. So, yeah, um, I'm from Toronto. Um, I ended up getting into photography, just kind of studying part-time, and then ended up working as a photo assistant, and that led to uh, being a wedding photographer. And I did that for a little while, and then uh, eventually the whole, like, uh, coming out as trans thing kind of happened. And unfortunately, the business didn't really survive that at the time. Uh, this was about 10 years ago, and, uh, you know, it was a little bit of a different uh, situation back then in terms of, like, public awareness and acceptance around trans people. Uh, so I ended up kind of defaulting back into chef work. So then you started the uh, vegan canteen and and um, began, you know, taking orders and stuff like that. And then something else happened uh, when you moved to Montreal. Tell us about that experience. Okay, yeah. Well, um, I was living in Montreal when I started vegan canteen, mostly uh, just being English there and needing a job. So you kind of create your own thing. And then uh, we moved up north to about an hour north of Montreal to a little town called Valdivid. And uh, I was like, oh, this would be a cool little place to open up a cafe. And we had a space, and uh, we did like a sugar shack, and then closed for a month, and then reopened in the spring as like a vegan cafe. And we just dealt with uh, a lot of transphobic nonsense right from the start, with like breaking and entering and vandalism, people pissing on the doors. And it just escalated very quickly to like a very intense like threats about like burning our house down and which coincided kind of the same day with a car fire right outside our house. So um, we quickly made the decision to uh, leave Quebec for safety reasons and uh, headed out to the West Coast. And uh, how has your experience been so far on the West Coast? I understand that uh, you first uh, stayed on the island on Salt Spring and now you're in Vancouver. How are you liking it there? Oh, Vancouver is great. I certainly love the weather on the West Coast. Uh, Salt Spring was amazing, but we were just living in like a little 120 square foot cabin with uh, no indoor bathroom. And that was definitely getting a little challenging, especially come like uh, December, January. Uh, so we kind of switched sides to Vancouver and uh, 
working on uh, reopening the business and rebuilding that in uh, Vancouver and uh, super excited to be launching our first uh, retail product which is a vegan cheese sauce coming out uh, in a few weeks so just kind of plugging away at that in Vancouver. So International Women's Day is coming up this weekend. Um, what what does that day um, mean to you, if it holds any meaning at all? Uh, you know, in all honesty, I don't really put a lot of meaning into that day. It seems like a lot of uh, like companies use it as an opportunity to advertise. Uh, there'll be like some fake word, um, that sort of thing. And I just find that I don't identify with that so much. Like I identify as a woman and I'm a trans woman, but I find uh, a lot of like this just white feminism just uh, doesn't make space for us. Um, like we talk about like this, and, like oh uh, equal wages and stuff like that. And I'm like my business like was like basically forced out, and like my partner and I had people threatening to burn down our home. Um, so it's like there's so many more pressing issues as like um, women and the trans woman and the queer woman that press on multiple angles, and it's like these things just don't ever really seem to get addressed with these days. So then, International Women's Day, regardless of the you know, causes it purports to support or, you know, the voices it says it uh, lifts up, it really doesn't do much for, for trans liberation, does it? I don't think so. I think at best, maybe they put us as, as an afterthought or a footnote in these days. I think a couple of years ago, I was asked to write something for the Globe and Mail for like international and say, but I always just feel like you're the token trans one with these things. And these things are certainly not addressing a lot of issues. Up. And like, are we addressing on this International Women's Day? How many Indigenous women don't have clean drinking water in Canada? Are we addressing, um, you know, the blockades and just the, you know, the land rights of Indigenous people? Like, there's so many things we should be focused on, on instead of like, well, I don't know, whatever they're going to focus on with these things. So, you know, basically companies trying to sell stuff. And papers will, of course, make a big deal about it and give some, you know, new feminist space. Now, it recently came out, uh, I believe it was yesterday, that the federal government is earmarking uh, about $18 million for um, LGBTQ uh, organizations and causes. Do you think more announcements like that and more focus on actually, you know, providing you know stable funding for those organizations would be better than just like a one day one off day where they kind of you know pretend to celebrate uh yeah absolutely um i didn't hear about that so um i'm not uh well first in the, the details on that but i think also yesterday or this morning i saw something like 620 women a day are turned away from uh, domestic violence shelters so you know like okay great you're gonna put money into lgbt orgs but like so massive problems that need way more funding and uh, you know I find like with a lot of issues with uh, you know trans people I know and specifically trans women that we're sort of facing a lot of times it's poverty and it's uh, you know affordable housing it's jobs that sort of thing so like, just kind of throwing money at these causes and not really fixing the overall problems that are you know causing a lot of the oppression and stuff like that I think it kind of misses the mark a lot of times yeah that's a very good point and when federal and provincial governments earmark a lot of this funding, even though they have good intentions, a lot of times they tend to either ignore or not cons properly consult uh, folks that are actually in those lived situations. They're just looking at statistics and it ends up, you know, um, kind of letting more slip 
through the cracks, as it were. Yeah, yeah, uh, but you know, at the end of the day, all they're really trying to do is appease uh, their voter base and make it seem like they're doing something. And uh, I think a lot of us know this isn't nearly enough. Um, and like the federal government, provincial governments actually need to deal with the crisis with housing, uh, that sort of thing. And like you can throw some money at some orgs and maybe I can, you know, people can go to a group support thing sort of thing. But uh, there's still so many issues that just are being ignored and uh you know, International Women's Day will pass, and then one day everything will be kind of back to normal. These things won't be addressed again. And uh, it's just, uh, you know, even sometimes I just think about these things like International Women's Day and sort of thing. It's like the feminism is so binary sometimes. It's like, and it gets so like, women this, man that, and like, we kind of really fail to address, you know, all the diversity of genders. That's another excellent point. Now, in regards to um, your business and Vegan Canteen, um, how is that? Uh, how has that been going the last little while? And uh, what do you have coming up? Uh, that's been going good. Definitely slower than I would like. Um, we got financially wiped out um, after having to close the cafe um, so quickly after opening. Uh, we just lost, you know, all our money, sort of thing, and then moved across country. So it's just been a slow process of one step at a time as we secure a little bit of funding here and there sort of thing. Um, so it's been a struggle, but uh, you know we're hoping to have all that launched at the end of the March. And yeah, no, it's super exciting. And uh, you know, to be able to get established here again in Vancouver and uh, set up a company that hopefully does well and we can employ people and pay livable wages. Where can they find your products? Uh, do you have them up on a website already or can they order them? Uh, they're not up on the website yet, but uh, I'm working on the website over the next week or so. Um, everything will be ready for online ordering in about two weeks, and it's uh, vegancanteen.com. Excellent. Well, you can find uh, Sophia Banks on Twitter, at Sophia Photos, and um, you can find uh, the Vegan Canteen products um, once they've been announced on vegancanteen.com. Sophia, thank you so much for joining me on the show today, and have yourself a good weekend. Thanks for having me. Have a great weekend, too. Coming up, I speak with Keisha Disher, the president of the North Island Pride Society, about what International Women's Day means to a queer woman and the upcoming Pride Festival in Campbell River. Joining me now on the line is the president of the North Island Pride Society, Keisha Disher. Thank you for joining me on the show today. Thank you very much for having me. So tell us about the North Island Pride Society. I understand it's only about three years old. Yes, that's right. Uh, The North Island Pride Society started not too long ago and is a small community, not-for-profit, completely run by volunteers organization to help uh, increase the community presence of the of of queer and LGBTQ individuals and to forward more community involvement for those individuals. So it's been it's been fairly new and because we are such a small society and uh, Campbell River and the North Island is uh, lower in population, we celebrate pride by having a pride party instead of a, a pride parade. So for the past 
for the past three years, we've done pride celebrations in downtown Campbell River, as opposed to having a parade. And how have those uh, pride festivals been received by the public? Really fantastic. It's been overwhelming. So for the past three years, the general population and community of Campbell River has increased in presence. And so I think over the past three years, we've seen probably about a 10 or 15% increase in attendees uh, for the festival from the general public. And we have probably about 10 or 15 uh, business organizations that come and act as sponsors or vendors at the Pride Celebration, all in the location Spirit Square in Campbell River. And the these businesses either sell LGBTQ um, products or the vendors themselves identify as LGBTQ plus or um, the businesses are supporting the LGBTQ plus involvement and yeah support the movement which is really wonderful and your involvement uh, in the pride society has it been uh, fairly recent and what does what does the pride society mean to you personally I have been involved in the Pride Society for about two years or about a year and a half. I started as a volunteer for the Pride Celebration in Campbell River when I moved here. So I've lived in Campbell River myself for about about a year and a half. And when I moved, I was approached by um, Sheldon Falk, who was the previous, uh, a previous director of the exec of the executive and eventually became the president of the Pride Society. So um, I haven't been here since the beginning, but I've definitely been here for a little while. And um, it's been very important to me to be involved in. I, I like supporting my community. I like making comfortable space for LGBTQI plus individuals and um, making events for the community is, has been really rewarding for me. So what do you have planned uh, this year for the Pride Festival? Any uh, insights as to what you might be doing? Uh, The Pride Celebration is planned to take place on June 20th this year. And we have our our Pride schedule for the celebrations usually is um, that we take place at, at Spirit Square again. The celebration will be approximately or the pride party will take will be approximately four hours, and they'll there will be um, sponsored by the Tide Mark. There will be uh, library reading hours by um, some fabulous drag queens, and then in the evening there will also be a pride party celebrated by or celebrated at the tide mark and it's usually a couple of drag queens and maybe a a musician performance so we're not quite sure what that's what that's going to look like yet but i think the the public available party will take place from about noon until four so with international women's day coming up this weekend what are you hopeful for uh to come out for the, the you know the coming year and what does international women's day mean to you as a member of the lgbtq plus community that's a really that's a really big question. I'm as an as a queer woman, International Women's Day, it it really does mean a lot. I it's important to me as as a woman that we celebrate the women that came before us, that fought for us, the things that we 
that we have now. And it, and it upsets me just as a citizen when people don't, don't take advantage of the things that we have been granted from those years of fights. So for instance, I'm talking about like women's suffrage and not then using the right to vote as an individual because in, or, in order for women to have more strength in our society and in our communities, we need to make sure that we actually take the, take the rights that we've been granted from women before us and use those rights like voting. So women's suffrage began in the early 1900s and in BC, we were finally granted the right to vote quite as far as I'm concerned, quite late. And so when women in our society choose not to vote and uh, don't take into consideration those impacts, it, it really doesn't move anybody forward. So as, as a person in the queer society and for, for all women, I really would like to see more women taking action in politics and making sure that the choices that are made in the future from now and in the future really are the benefit of well, of everybody but also that we make sure that we don't squander what has been fought for us in the past keisha disher is the president of the of the north island pride society you can find them on their facebook page at facebook.com forward slash north island pride society thank you so much for joining me on the show today and have yourself a pleasant weekend Thank you so much. I really appreciate this opportunity. This has been a special presentation of the Left Behind Podcast. Visit leftbehindpodcast.com for all the latest episodes and updates on socialist politics from around the world.